0: It's the first Monday of the month, and we're taking your questions on Coaching for Leaders, episode number 295.
1: Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential.
0: Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stehoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made, and this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader, and once a month, we open up the lines to our I always say open up the lines, but that is just it's just (laughs) wrong for a podcast that's recorded in advance. We're not opening up the lines per se, but we are taking your questions from the Coaching for Leaders community. And by the way, you can submit a question anytime to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. We will consider your questions. And along with me considering questions, as always, is Bonnie Stahoviak. Hello, Bonnie.
1: Hello, Dave. I am the person who always says I'm going to air the podcast at a certain time, my Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. And then I confuse people who have never listened to podcasts or have never been on a podcast before because they think they have to listen at the exact time that it airs.
0: So uh, we got lots of questions here, Bonnie. So let's uh, jump right in. Richard wrote in and asks, I'm currently working in a unique organization which doesn't follow the standards of best practices. It has a hierarchical reporting structure, but at the top, we have an advisory board that takes decisions instead of a single person. That board is just below the CEO, has three people in it, and I I am one of them. I struggle most of the time to get agreement with the other two decision makers, either because of different views on a topic or because of political games. Sometimes they refuse to agree on certain topics or challenge my proposals and each other's proposals just because they're reluctant to admit the other member has a better idea than them. I know the ideal scenario would be to switch to another mechanism or to get people who are more flexible... But none of these is an option right now. Do you have any experience directly slash indirectly related to this? And I'm thinking he's also asking us for some advice, Bonnie, on how he might navigate the situation.
1: I must admit, Richard, that I was cracking up while I was reading your question, especially when I got to your part of the question that said, did I have any experience directly or indirectly related to this? It feels like my entire business career has at some point or another involved very similar things to what you're describing here. It's really tough because I still, even as much as I have been able to study and learn about leadership, I still find myself subscribing to this myth that the higher up you'll go in the organization you will have gotten promoted there because of some sort of ability to lead and 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 inspire other human beings. And the fact of the matter is that in a lot of cases, there's not a lot of correlation there. So you get the same kind of dysfunction that you would get anytime you put a group of people together and try to get things accomplished. It's not like there's some magic powers that somehow emerge when someone gets moved up in the organization. Sadly, it's it's oftentimes not because they've demonstrated such good people skills. Uh, when you look at studies on management, yes, you'll often find a greater abundance of conceptual skills the higher you go up in an organization, but you're not going to find that a huge abundance of better human skills when you move up in the organization. So this kind of thing happens. I have experienced it all the time. And I still continue to experience it today, and I'll say, first of all, I want to just acknowledge that it's really frustrating. It's hard when you're trying to get something done, and when it feels like people's personalities are getting in the way, or you talked a little bit about political games, so I did just want to acknowledge it's not like I have some magic sauce to give you today, and everything's going to be better, and you'll never have these issues again, Richard, but I, I have had a couple of things that have worked well for me, although colleagues, if you're listening, never with you, just with other people that you've never met before, because <laughs> I feel like I'm giving away some of my tiny, tiny bit of tools that I have used with uh, individuals that I work with. So, you know, they don't really listen anyway. So I think we're probably, <laughs> I think we're probably okay. Here we go. Giving away the secrets. So first of all, the absolute best way I have found to deter some of this is to just create a social norm around we always decide how to decide first. We don't make decisions before we decide how we're going to decide. What criteria are we going to use? And just by being very assertive at that point in the process, you can ultimately be a part of having better decisions get made, even if it doesn't end up being your idea that gets selected, but just if you're the part of the process that says, Hey, let's not make a decision. I mean, you're not going to be, I think you can assertively say, let's decide in advance before we start looking at our options, let's decide how we're going to decide. And also then therefore, what our criteria will be in this decision process, that's going to result in much better decision-making and you can be for providing that framework for the individuals that have to make the decision. Now, you talked about what sound like some pretty difficult people, and one of the things that I have found helpful is rather than, and I just did it, but rather than, it's not really very helpful for me to just be, that's a difficult person, but instead to say, well, yes, it is difficult because I have this idea, I think it's a pretty good idea, it is difficult when someone else just wants to shoot holes in it, but what I, find is I can do so much better if I say, well, what this person is really good at doing is seeing what's not there. And I'm not really that good at seeing what's not there. I'm pretty good at going, wow, that's great. I really like that too. Oh, how about that? So recognizing that they could be a part of the process in helping us all see what's not there. That's one good quality they can bring. I will admit to using this method, which might sound manipulative. But if it is manipulation that gets us to a greater outcome, that gets us to a better quality decision, and by the way, what makes up a quality decision is not just the quality of the decision itself, but also the level of commitment that the people who are both making the decision and also will have to actually execute on that decision, have in it? It can be the best decision that there ever was, but if the other people on your team aren't committed to fulfilling what it's going to take to actually implement that decision, then it wasn't really that good of a decision after all. So here it is. Here's the secret sauce, if there is any. Plan something out in advance to let them take aim at it. Plan something out in advance that you know isn't that great, that you have questions about, that really has some downsides to it, that maybe might not even be such a bad thing if it doesn't end up happening but let them, and you have to be cautious with this because I think if we're completely, our only goal is to manipulate, our only goal is to try to play the trickery, then you're just joining them in the same thing that you're criticizing them for as the political games. So you do have to be cautious about this, but I have just found that helpful to say, if I've refined my idea so much that any alteration of it is going to cause it to crumble, then in an environment like this, it's just not gonna work. So I'll have some parts where I've already kind of thought through and oh, I don't know if that'll work. It has some upsides, but it also has some downsides, but to kind of throw it out there so there's more room for them to go, oh, you know what, you're right about that. Well, that's not gonna work at all because this, this, and then kind of let them get it a little bit out of their system. And then you might find that some of the core of what you're proposing still remains intact when when you're all done, but it's tough. I, I would say in all of this to try to remain as authentic as you can, to try to be very, very self-aware and recognize that, um, Dave, what's the wonderful book about the box and being in the box? And-
0: oh, Leadership and Self-Deception by the Arbinger Institute.
1: It's just so easy, myself very included, to be the, I'm the perfect player in all of this. I don't, I don't participate in all of this. It's all of those people outside of there. But really, the analogy, and I can't even do it justice because it sounds so corny, but the analogy is really that we put ourselves in our own prisons. We put ourselves in our own boxes, and we limit ourselves that way when we allow ourselves to do that. Like, I'm the good person, and they're not so good. It, it's just a really bad paradigm. And it shows, then, when we're working with other people, they can feel that we don't respect them and it's just really it's really really tough. That's a really good read. If you haven't read it before, I would highly recommend. And the other one is Peter Blocks, The Empowered Manager. Mm. There's some really good chapters in there about management at lots of different ways, management with peers, management up and and then management to the people that report to you. Influences what I meant to say specifically really good about um, some different ways of influencing, because that looks different, obviously, when you have a power dynamic going on, it looks different. But uh, yeah, it's tough. It's tough. And I would love to hear how things are going. Richard, with this situation, if you wouldn't mind writing us back and let us know if any of this works for you.
0: I have nothing to add. That was fabulous. Thanks so much for all the perspective on that. All right, let's go to our next question here.
1: Our question on this one is an audio question from Edwin.
0: Hi, my name's Edwin, and I had a question around what to do when someone gets fired in an environment. I've always found it quite shocking to have someone removed from a system and have no discussion around it or no processing or closure around that for the people left behind and to not address when someone's removed from a system. So I wondered what your professional advice or experience has been with either coaching within organizations when this happens or your own personal thoughts around that. Thanks. Edwin, thank you so much for the question. So my professional advice would be to follow what your HR organization and legal folks are telling you and your organization you need to do. This is why this happens in a lot of organizations is because organizational leaders have been told by Senior leadership or their HR department that um, they can't talk about why someone's been dismissed because if they do, then that could open up the organization to liability. I'm not an HR or legal expert, so it it's probably not appropriate for me to comment on you know how valid that is. I'm I'm sure that it is different in different jurisdictions and in different organizations and in different situations. On a personal level, it's really frustrating. It's really frustrating for. You, as an employee, I suspect, from the context of your question of having someone been dismissed from the organization and not have any idea why that happened, it's as frustrating, if not more frustrating, um, as someone who's been in this situation at least once, from a leadership standpoint, to want to say something and to want to give an explanation and to want to have a dialogue with the team about it and to have been told by the organization, you cannot, uh, you're not allowed to it's a really really difficult thing to navigate um so I, I don't know if i have i don't know if i have a lot of practical uh, suggestions and help on this um, i guess one thing for sure i would i would I would advise, um, having seen an organization do this before, is I was part of an organization a while back where we had a couple of times where transitions happened in the organization where someone left. And sometimes it was because someone was dismissed, and sometimes it was just because someone decided on another opportunity. And the team didn't meet all that much together. And it, it happened more than once where a person left the organization and it just was never announced at all. like Not even no explanation, but not even mention that someone had left the organization. And sometimes it would take you know, some time for people to realize like, oh, this person isn't here anymore. Um, I think at the bare minimum, like at least making some acknowledgement that someone's left, you may not be able to explain it. Again, you got to talk to your HR and legal folks, but say as much as you can. Um, and I don't know, Bonnie, you used to be an, A- an HR VP. So you of course have the perfect answer for this question, right? <laughs> Maybe.
1: It's a tough thing, but I would err on the side of let's talk about it because, you know, it's going to be talked about anyway, but you don't talk about the reasons why the person isn't there anymore because it's not relevant to the group. But what gets left out when we're told, oh, don't talk about this is, well, the fact is it is going to be talked about just perhaps not in front of you now that you as a leader have passed on this mandate that this can't be discussed, but it gets discussed. So I would just open up the space for that to happen and i would say i i want to have a conversation because joe isn't working with us anymore and there are some things i really can't go into detail about that's for joe's sake that he would really prefer that i not bring up some aspects of it but but joe's not here and i know that you know transitions like this can be difficult for a whole bunch of reasons sometimes because we miss joe sometimes they're difficult because joe picked up a piece of work that nobody really realized that he had been handling for a long time and now that's going to put extra work on some of you. So I would just like to open up the floor and say, who who can identify what's going to be the impact of Joe not being here anymore? And let's talk a little bit about some interim structures that we can put in place for until such a time, it, will there be a replacement? If I know there'll be a replacement, I can talk about that. If we haven't figured out what it's going to look like yet, we can get everyone to acknowledge, wow, this means extra work for me now. Well, people are really a lot more willing to take on extra work without complaining about it if they know that there's an end in sight and they know that they get to be a part of creating whatever the new new is going to look like. So just talking about interim structures, talking about if there are issues of missing the person or you know a lot of confusion, just to give a space to air it out. But of course, you don't want to be foolish and be saying anything about in a negative way, why Joe isn't here anymore. You never want to lead on anything about what's this Joe's choice or your choice. I mean, those are the kinds of things that won't be addressed in conversations like that. But I would really encourage talking about it up to every line that you possibly can and maybe even stretch it a little bit (laughs) beyond what other people might be comfortable with. Because I can guarantee you the conversations will happen. You just get to decide if you're actually going to be in them or not as a leader.
0: Yeah, hope that helps you, Edwin. Our next question is from Isapo. And let me provide a little context of what she's saying on her message here. Um, she had reached out to me on Twitter with a question around parents and leadership, and I wasn't clear on what she was asking. So I sent her a message, and this was her reply back with uh, the question for us to consider. Hi, Dave. This is Isabu Iqbad from Vancouver. I wanted to clarify the message I sent, it, sent you via Twitter. What I meant is when you're a manager how to work with colleagues or direct reports who are parents. Because being a parent, as you know, brings a whole other set of circumstances into your life. And so when I listened to that episode about, that wonderful episode, by the way, about working with part-time employees, I thought, ah, isn't it also true that when the employees are parents, there
1: are special needs and circumstances. And that's about it. So thanks, Dave. Bye bye. As we've talked about on the past episodes, Dave and I are parents of small children, and certainly would put ourselves among people that would see ourselves as having needs that were different than when we were single. But what I think one of the dangers that at least any of us can really fall into on circumstances like this is to think that everyone doesn't at some point in their life have a need for being treated in such a way to help them in a part of their lives that can be really challenging. I I was talking about a recent episode on my podcast about a cancer diagnosis. And you've got doctor's appointments, you've got chemotherapy, you have the fact that your future employment can really be at risk in terms of once you have that diagnosis, then is someone going to discriminate against you in the future because your healthcare will be far too expensive as somebody who has that as a pre existing condition. I, I've mentioned on my podcast as well having a family member And I know Isabo listens too, so she's aware of that. But having a family member who recently was diagnosed with dementia, and it's actually hitting Dave far worse than me because (laughs) Dave ended up being the power of attorney in this situation. And so as far as selling assets and renting out property and that kind of stuff, I mean, it's it's, um, difficult and that has nothing to do with the fact that Dave is also a parent of small children, (laughs) but now he is uh, needing – a lot more flexibility just in terms of being able to go down to a bank, being able to go, you know, drive somewhere to meet the realtor or whatever, whatever the case may be, I would say overarching, as we think about being good leaders in the workplace, the biggest gift that we can give both to our employees, as well as to our workplaces, is flexibility. And that just keeps coming up and up. And I mean, you look at the literature and human resources, Women, of course, when, when the war was over and a lot more women went back to work, that really has changed the dynamic over all these decades of what's needed in the workplace. It doesn't, by the way, mean that men don't also need flexibility. It's huge as far as keeping men motivated as well. But we do still have you know a, a pretty ingrained gender roles type of thing that I, I sometimes think like to think of myself as above but i know that we all have these biases that can pop up for certain but the best gift that we can give is flexibility and it's it's kind of one of those things where i see so many times managers thinking that their role is to control and if i give that flexibility then am i going to be squeezing every hour out of that person that, well, if they went to that doctor's appointment, then, well, that was two hours. And then what about the two hours? And by the way, there's a huge difference, legally speaking, between somebody who is exempt from overtime and someone who is not. And there, I mean, there's regulations around how you classify people and that kind of thing. And that's certainly not Dave or my expertise. I know enough to be dangerous, (laughs) certainly. But we, we both want to follow the law. But at the same time, there's nothing that says, even if I have somebody who isn't exempt from overtime, as in they need to work the eight hours, you know that kind of thing, I could still have them go to the doctor's office and then, okay, this evening, why don't you just check in on email and see how things are going and get those extra hours in after the kids go to bed, maybe. I mean, that's, that's where we can really get creative as far as Yes, they're still working the required hours. They're still going to get paid for the time that they put in. But when we do that for employees, it's just so much more motivating because it is rough to try to navigate those seasons of life when you have young kids, when you have aging family members who need extra care, when you receive that diagnosis, that means your whole life is going to be different. There's going to be a lot more visits to the doctor. And that would be my biggest suggestion is to try not to think of it so much as parents, but to broaden that and just think about how can I put flexibility more and agency. In fact, uh, you always are so good, David, coming up with the three things that Daniel Pink, his research on drive. Oh,
0: autonomy, purpose, and mastery.
1: I will tell you those three things. I mean, I I get it. He did a whole bunch more research than I ever did, but it makes so much sense to me. I would be thinking about those three things and then also thinking of it less in terms of, oh, these are parents, so we need to do this specific list of prescriptions. But the better that we can get about understanding different people's contexts, the better I think we can really care overall and lead well for our employees. So yes, get to know parents, ask them what their challenges are, ask them what they're struggling with, but also get to know people who have recently had a family member die. Also get to know people who are perhaps clinically depressed. That's certainly in the workplace. We, we often think that it's not there, but I used to work for a very, very large institution, actually multiple universities, a university system, and that was the number one drug prescribed to the employees of that system. So we know it's there in our workplaces. So that would be, you know, even another kind of context to have greater appreciation for. I hope that's helpful. It's 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 tough to meet people's needs in terms of that, and I, I feel a little bit like I, I may not be the best person because I am pretty privileged as far as having flexibility in my. Work. In fact, I recently took on a new role at my institution, and that was one of the things I really advocated for myself. Just talking to the person, it was kind of a weird thing. I didn't apply for a job, but I, <laughs> I kept they kept trying to give me a job. So I said, "Well, would you like to know what job I would take?" And so I basically created my own job, and and within that, I created say, explaining, you know, I'm a person that really needs a lot of autonomy. I really need a lot of personal mastery. what was the third? Oh, this is actually oh, purpose one. and mastery. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I really need a lot of that. And so, teaching that other person really what was going to motivate me, but also what was going to keep me from taking this job if it wasn't there. So, I do have the ability to work from home a bunch, and if a doctor's appointment comes up, I don't even have to think twice about it. And I know not all roles can be structured in such a way.
0: Yeah. As far as I mean, you mentioned I'm navigating a lot right now, just life situation with what's going on with our family, not only kids but some extended family. And, Isabel, to to your question specifically, I don't ever expect any accommodation because I'm a parent from anyone that I work with in any kind of professional capacity. And, I also am careful about how I communicate conflicts with people professionally. So, um, for example. Um, If there's something that's going on with, um, and again, to Bonnie's point, you know, we both have different kinds of work that we have more flexibility than maybe uh, other folks do. But I I think that there's also, there's a lot you can do around language on this. And the reason um, I'm mentioning this is this actually came up as a conversation in our academy recently, Bonnie. Um, We have a member of our academy who did not attend a, a meeting that was not supposed to be a critical meeting, and it turned out it turned into a critical meeting, and then he had made some communication to someone about, oh, it was because they were doing a family event. And so the narrative that emerged among some of the people in the organization is, oh, this person is more concerned about family than about work, which is not at all true. And so we were talking about this and I said, you know, one of the things, there's times where I'll share a little more details of like why I'm not available or not attending a meeting, especially if it's like an evening commitment or something like that. But generally speaking, my default response if it's some if it's someone in the professional space and there's a reason that I can't do something because of a personal conflict or a family event, um, I just say I'm not available. And I don't go into a lot of detail and I generally don't volunteer a lot of information. Um, again, that's that's outside of my normal responsibilities if it's within responsibilities. And even then, I'm a little more careful as far as going into detail on things because I don't want people giving me an accommodation because I'm a parent and I don't expect that. And at the same time, I, I do feel like it's very much my responsibility to navigate around those things. So I, I, I don't know if this helps Isabel. And, uh, and to Bonnie's point, there's a lot of different kinds of situations that folks are navigating, not just parenting. So I, I just try to keep those things separate unless I have a really good sense of trust with some of the people that I'm communicating with and or handling that particular situation.
1: There is a tweet that is going around right now that is back to a profile that Esquire Magazine did of Joe Biden, and it has a letter that he sent to his staff before Thanksgiving in 2014. I'm just going to read his letter. To my wonderful staff, this is dated November 7th, 2014, I would like to take a moment and make something clear to everyone. I do not expect, nor do I want any of you to miss or sacrifice important family obligations for work. Family obligations include, but are not limited to family birthdays, anniversaries, weddings, any religious ceremonies such as first communions and bar mitzvahs, graduations, and times of need such as illness or loss in the family. This is very important to me. In fact, I will go so far as to say that if I find out that you're working with me, While missing important family responsibilities, it will disappoint me greatly. This has been an unwritten rule since my days in the Senate. Thanks for all the hard work. Sincerely, Joe Biden. Why did I just read that? Because that is the exception to the rule. And that is why what Dave said, addressing Isabel's question It is really important that we keep that stuff to ourselves most of the time. I mean, I think I get away with that a little bit more. I work at a university. Things tend to be a little different there. I also work for a faith-based university. So if I were to say go to a baptism, I think they probably would be okay with that. But I think for the most part, in most contexts, sadly, we still need to keep those things as not what we put front and center. I, I... often most of the time pick up our son on Fridays for his school. Dave does all the other days (laughs) of the word that he goes to school currently three days a week. But yeah, that's my one time. But I don't say, oh, I have to leave that meeting at the time you ended it, by the way. I can't stick around for the hour after show (laughs) that happens. I don't say I'm leaving because I'm going to go pick up my son from school. I just don't typically say that. I'll typically say I have another commitment I need to get to. And that's just not important for them to know why. Because sadly, it does lead to then there's a potential for discrimination that doesn't need to enter into there.
0: Yeah. And I don't think either of us are saying like, we never say something like that to people. It's just within a broader context, uh, making a comment in in a large meeting professionally, like generally, like why... I, I wish we lived in a world where that wasn't an issue. And in some organizations, it really isn't anymore. There's there's a great embracement of of work-life balance and family and still also a strong commitment to results and getting work done and that those two things don't have to compete with each other in people's minds. And unfortunately, there's a lot of places that's still not the case, as sad as it is. And so uh, if you're in one of those places, then just be careful about what you say and who you say it to. And I think that you'll sidestep a lot of those issues before they have to become difficult conversations.
1: I also think that this can be a helpful practice to get into when we're just thinking about, I'm trying to think of who it was I was reading recently, but just talking about keeping your commitments and really keeping the focus. Some of this has come up in the book essentialism and, and some of it's come up in the deep work type of stuff, but being able to say no and set boundaries is a really vital skill and sometimes I know certainly for myself, and, and, and I think some of this comes from growing up as a woman and we're supposed to play nice and, and be more kind of people pleasing, that kind of thing is thinking that I have to make an excuse for why I need to leave the meeting when it was scheduled to end. And I don't need to. So I, I can just say, actually, I've got another commitment I'm going to need to get to, but thanks so much for today. And I'll definitely follow up on the things that we talked about. I, mean, it, I, don't, I don't need to explain myself. And anyway, just reminding me some of just the importance of saying no and, and setting good boundaries. And I'm cracking up now as he's supposed thinking, man, this is not what I asked you, but you got, you got, <laughs> us, you got us thinking about she, a lot of good things. So thank you so much you got for more than question. you bargained for. <laughs> and our last question today is going to be from Tad. He writes, I'm a program manager for an aerospace and defense contractor with 10 years of program management experience. I'm reaching out to you to see if you had any advice on what I can do to enhance my program management skills.
0: Well, Tad, thank you for the question. For those who are not familiar with the aerospace and defense industry, a program manager is essentially a general manager of a business unit, usually producing a uh, product. So, the skill set here is pretty broad as far as from a leadership standpoint. So, my response will be broad, Tad, and Bonnie might have some suggestions uh, for you as well. There's, a, of course, a lot you can do. And if you're working for a defense contractor, Chances are, and those tend to be, not always, but tend to be pretty large firms. Um, chances are that there's some leadership development that is already offered internally in your organization. Um, I'd certainly seek out some of those opportunities. Um, and for anyone listening who's you know in a medium to large size firm, a lot of firms do have something that they've established as a good leadership development path. Now, I know sometimes in talking to people and in talking with even members of our academy, People said, you know, those R's, they aren't always perfect or they're not always as robust as I'd like them to be. But I still think most of the time they're worth doing because even if it's not exactly what you need or it's not um, exactly the program you would have put together, it's the program the firm has invested in. And oftentimes, uh, there's a visibility that you're going to get by being involved in that kind of a program. And you may do other things too, but I think Definitely seeking those out and learning about those programs and opportunities is great. In addition, seeking out coaching, our academy, of course, is an option, and then soliciting feedback from others. And part of what I'm hearing, you didn't say this in your question, Tad, but part of what I'm hearing a bit here is... Uh, You know, where do I start? What's the place I should be thinking about? So one place to be thinking about is, are you soliciting feedback regularly? And what are you hearing from people that's maybe an indicator to you on what you could be doing to enhance your leadership skills? Uh, And if you don't have a framework for that, the framework I'd suggest is the one Tom Henschel talked about in episode 107. Uh, So you can get to that at coachingforleaders.com slash 107. Three steps to soliciting feedback. It's a really simple and powerful model. If you start implementing It will give you some good data on what people are thinking or saying about you that will help you then to start to make some decisions on, oh, you know, I'm hearing this two or three times from people. That's something that I'd then address. Because depending on what that is, you may do some different things around it. So, and then the other uh, other thing I'd recommend, I actually, uh, a while ago, I put together a list that was a book list. And I think one of the best starting points for leadership development is just to start reading. Um, We've already mentioned a bunch of models today from books that we'll be putting here in the show notes. Um, I had a book list for years that I distributed to folks who signed up for um, back then, back on the the original newsletter for the podcast. And uh, I've since updated it uh, within the last couple of months, and I handed it off to some of our Academy members, but I'll make it available to everyone. The new list is called 11 Crucial Books That Every Leader Should Know. I've gone ahead and looked at. I think are, if I had to pick 11 books that I think are the ones that are most critical for you to read and to know in the models to be a successful leader, um, these would be the 11 that I'd suggest. There's some new books on the list. There's some old books on the list, um, but I think it's a really good starting point. If even if you just read one or two of them, it'll really be helpful to you. And um, you, Tad, and anyone else can get access to that by just going to coachingforleaders.com crucial, and that will give you the PDF download of those 11 I'm trying to say this so it doesn't sound like I'm I'm giving you 11 books, (laughs) Uh, 11, a list of 11 books. Hopefully that makes sense. So again, coachingforleaders.com slash crucial is where to go for that. Bonnie, other suggestions on starting points for Ted?
1: One of the things I used to do a lot in my career was to coach presentation skills. And it is a reminder to me as I think back to that of something I would really recommend to you. And that is to make sure that, yes, go and read books, yes, get feedback, yes, take assessments, which is one that Dave didn't officially mention, but, but in terms of getting feedback one way you can do that is through a 360-degree assessment where you can get feedback from the people you report to, people that report to you, and also to your peers. But the reason I bring up coaching presentation skills is that you always want to see what it looks like after the fact because it can become a little bit like candy. And I say this as someone who has read a lot of books about leadership, and a lot of books about teaching. But if we don't actually do something with it, we don't actually put it into practice, and then find out if it actually had any kind of an impact, then it can be about as helpful in terms of our own healthy bodies as eating candy, which again, I do eat candy, so I'm not saying no to candy. I'm just saying let's get some protein in there too and let's get some complex carbohydrates. So yeah, I would think about doing a 360. They've been really powerful to me. But even if you don't do a 360, you do something a little bit more informal, I would suggest some form, a method for getting that feedback after the fact. Because a lot of people, they start out, they do the assessment or they read the book or they take the training or whatever. It's wonderful. What is it going to look like when it's over? And how will you know the kind of impact that it had on you? And that would just be something that I think a lot of people miss when they're embarking on such an important thing like you're considering doing.
0: Tad, if you're really ready to move on it and build great relationships and have a lot of accountability to what Bonnie said of not just learning but really moving on it, the coaching for leaders academy is also really um probably a good resource for you to consider. You or anyone else, just go to coachingforleaders.com slash academy. We don't have seats open right now, but if you get on that list, you will get notified the next time seats do open, and we do that at least a couple times a year. Thank you, Bonnie. And as always, the books and resources we mentioned are captured in the show notes. The best way to get access to those is to join the weekly leadership guide that comes out every Wednesday to your inbox. I always have a brief review of the week's show, the links, and a number of other leadership resources that you can access that'll help support your leadership development during the week. And the best way to get access to that is to activate your free membership on the Coaching for Leaders website. You can do that by going to coachingforleaders.com. Dot com that will give you access to the Wednesday weekly leadership guide. It'll also give you access to a whole bunch of other things, including my free 10-day audio course, 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead. I went back and took the what I thought are the best episodes, and not only the best episodes, but actually the best few minutes of the episodes over the last four to five years and found the ones that I thought would be the things that, if you heard, will give you the most immediate practical start on leading more effectively, especially if you're a new or relatively new listener to the show. It's a great way to go back and get a lot of the wisdom from the show. You can activate that by going to coachingforleaders.com and you'll begin receiving it. You'll also get access to the full library of podcasts from the last almost six years now that you can search by topic. So set up your free membership if you haven't already. Uh, We have, uh, I think uh, I mentioned last time, we have almost 4,000 people who have uh, now set up free memberships on the site. So thank you so much for all of you who have. It's great getting to interact with you more, and I hope the resources are being helpful to you. And speaking of more resources, several past episodes that'll be helpful to you if you found today's conversation helpful. We mentioned episode 107, Three Steps to Soliciting Feedback with Tom Henschel. Tom was back on the show a a while ago. It was actually his first appearance. And we talked about the three steps that you can take that are very simple, actually, in order to solicit more feedback from the people you're working with. If you haven't listened to that episode, it's a really powerful way to begin that process. And if you follow those three steps, you will hear more feedback than you're currently hearing today. And that's one of the questions I get asked often is, well, how do I get Feedback from people. I'm not hearing anything, or when I ask for feedback, people say, Oh, you know, everything's good. Things are fine. If you're looking for more than that, that's a really good listen, episode 107. Also, we mentioned Cal Newport today, episode 233 how to engage in deep work. If you are looking for some strategies and tips to be more productive, and specifically to really engage in what Cal calls more deep work, of really zoning yourself off and focusing on something that's of importance for you and your organization. We talked a ton about strategies in episode 233, one of my uh, favorite past episodes, so check that out if that's of interest to you. And then we talked a bunch about leadership and management in this episode, episode 249, also a very important listen, how to succeed with leadership and management. John Cotter, who's one of the uh, experts on organizational change, was on that episode. We talked about the distinctions between leadership and management and also how to navigate that well in your organization. So if that is something you are thinking about right now, or perhaps your organization's growing, you're trying to think of how to stay entrepreneurial and nimble, but at the same time to put in the management systems that you need for a growing organization, episode 249 is an important lesson for you. You can get to all of those by just going to coachingforleaders.com slash the episode number. And next week, I am thrilled to welcome Lolly Daskal to the show. She is a expert leadership coach and author and speaker, and she is joining me to discuss her new book, The Leadership Gap, What Gets Between You and Your Greatness. So join us next week for that conversation. Thank you as well to Oliver in Switzerland and Luana in the States for the very kind reviews on iTunes. Thank you, both of you. I really appreciate the kind words. If you've been listening for a while and would like to leave a review for the show, I always appreciate those. Go to coachingforleaders.com slash iTunes. Have a fabulous week and see you next Monday to speak with Lolly Daskal. Take care.